everybody, Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is January 3rd, 2023, and it is also the 10th day of Tevet, 5783, a meaningful day on the Jewish calendar. But that is not the subject of today's interview. I am really, really honored to have uh, on the other line, on the other side of the line, Dr. Er- Professor Dr. Eric Myers from Duke University who, uh, for anybody who, not just the tour guide and the archaeology lovers, um, for anyone really who understands a little bit about the decades-long work both he and his wife, Carol, have put into this country, the students they brought here, the students that they've talked, that they've taught. Uh, so I really am very delighted. And it came upon, it came out ac- accidentally, if you will, because uh, although, Dr. Myers, I interviewed your wife many years ago on her wonderful book, Rediscovering Eve, no surprise that that book caught my eye. Um, but you just put out a book about your long and illustrious career. So please tell my listeners about that long and illustrious career, which is far from over. Well, it's been it's been nearly it's been over sixty years since I first came to Israel. Believe it or not, I came as an undergraduate in nineteen sixty one, and came as a married young man with my <laughs> wife in nineteen sixty four. So we're one year shy of sixty years as a married couple. Beautiful. And um, we fell under the um, mag- magnetism of the great teacher and mentor in archaeology, Yadin, as his students, and spent the winter of uh, 64-5 at Masada digging, and that's the cover of the book, An Accidental Archaeologist. And my career really followed my wife's. She beat me into the field, actually, had worked in Israel as an archaeologist a couple of summers before we met even. I had started out in in graduate school studying Jewish art and archaeology, but from a more theoretical point of view with the late Erwin Goodenough of Yale University. And he was a brilliant uh, teacher and a wonderful scholar. And in the middle of our studies, he died of cancer. And I sort of switched switched over to what we call today biblical archaeology. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that term, biblical archaeology, gets some people nervous because they, they picture people going to dig with a Bible in one hand looking to prove the Bible. At least that's how it started off way back when. How would you interpret that term now, biblical archaeology? Biblical archaeology today is much more akin to archaeology of the land of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think most people who try to combine uh, their field work with the interpretation of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, um, try to merge those two disciplines. Not everyone can do it carefully and uh, with great caution, but the, it certainly matured a long way. We have a lot of people in the field uh, who come from conservative Christian backgrounds. And that's where the old biblical archaeology is alive and well. I'm not going to name names, but there are many of them who work both in Israel and in Mm -hmm. Jordan and nearby lands that really are still out to prove the Bible in its its literal way. 
We have a, a dig uh, across the Jordan that wants the exact chronology of the Bible to be proven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they think the world is 5,783 years and prehistory does not exist for them. Mm-hmm. It's only the history of the Bible. So that aspect of biblical archaeology is alive and well in some circles, and it's very well funded, I should say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've interviewed some of the archaeologists who would fall who would fall into that category. So you kind of got... I guess, under the spell of Israel, you and your wife. Yes. And uh, would you say that that's really been the focus of your life's work, both of you or you in particular? Well, I'm, in addition to field archaeology, my work has been in Jewish history and Hebrew Bible research. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> in a genuine <laughs> You're sense, all in. I'm, I'm full-time. <laughs> exactly. I'm full-time in Israel-related research. And as you know, if you've looked at the book, also been a cantor my entire life. So I'm in, in the conservative old world tradition, I, I would say, and in the liberal conservative tradition at that. Mm-hmm. So maybe you'll sing for us at some point during the broadcast? <laughs> well, I want to. <laughs> I, I have a soft spot for cantors. My late grandfather was a chazan, as they say in oh, Hebrew. Great, and great. there's, there's something great. about it that, re- that resonates for me, you know, forever. It's an emotional, definitely emotional reaction, but it's a beautiful thing to be able to sing the Jewish liturgy. So where, and maybe it's not a fair question, where in Israel would you say is like your favorite place or the place that, not necessarily your favorite place, maybe that's not the right way of putting it, the place where your, what you found and your expectations maybe were the biggest surprise? Well, uh, really, as a field archaeologist and working in Israel starting out in, in 69, 70, I fell in love with the Upper Galilee. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, we made our home for 12 years in the Orthodox village Moshav Meron. Mm-hmm. And wow. um, befriended everyone in that Moshav and the inspector of antiquities, Mefakeh Atikot there, Nathaniel Tiflinsky, a... a very pious man, knew every inch of the Galilee, and we became dear, close friends. He was about 20 years older than I and just loved the man, and he loved me. And when we would explore various corners of of uh, the Upper Galilee, he would, he would make me sing some of my <laughs> favorite melodies, by the way. Because he was born and raised in the old city, so they're they're the two two right. archaeologists in an Arab village uh, singing nigunim from the high holidays. How's that? <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> it's it's a true story, and so Tiflinsky really showed me what the Galilee was like. It was unexplored pretty much in those days. There had been soundings at Gushkalav. Uh, already by Aharoni and and a number of small finds there, but till we entered that village, an Arab village <clears throat> near Miron, there was hardly any work on synagogues. So we excavated four sites in the Upper Galilee with synagogues: Kirbet Shema, which we identify as Tekoa Haglilit, mm-hmm. uh, Gush Chalav, which is 
Christian and Muslim, now mostly Muslim Arab village, four kilometers away from Iran, Nevoraya, Nabertain, in the middle of the Tzfat JNF forest, where we found the pediment of the ark, and Meron um, <clears throat> itself. Mm-hmm. As the um, as the yeshivot started to expand, they started destroying antiquities. So the Antiquities Authority, then the Department of Antiquities, uh, asked us to uh, excavate the lower city and other parts of the city or village of Meron so as to stop the spread of the yeshivot over the mm-hmm. ancient ruins. Mm-hmm. And so we we literally saved the ancient city of Meron from the expansion of, of modern. The, yes, yeah. of modern. That's the constant struggle here is the balance between the ancient and the new in this country. And that's where Tisha B'Av uh, mm. overwhelms the site and uh, the recent tragedy there. Ex- right signifies the kind of um, growth and expansion that endangers archaeology. How do you find Israel, you know, when you started, Israel was a baby. I mean, you come in the 1960s, the country is young, um, and the archaeology is mainly outside archaeologists who come in. And in the interim, and I studied last year, I, I got a master's degree in archaeology and land of Israel studies at Bar Ilan last year. So I was able to study with some of the really, well, who I consider some of the great archaeologists of today. How do you find that? How do you find the homegrown uh, archaeologists of today to work with in terms of their level of professionalism, um, you know, they're caring about, about the country itself and what they find here? Well, I mean, <clears throat> Israel has produced state-of-the-art archaeologists in numbers that I, I I don't think can be challenged anywhere in the world. I mean, while the popularity of the subject at university level has decreased, and yes. I'm sure you know that worldwide, yes. and especially in the United States, but also in Israel, uh, the professionalism in the guild of archaeology in the land of Israel is without peer. Mm-hmm. Um, I I could rate the, rate them all if you like, but I think <laughs> Tel Aviv Tel Aviv is in a commanding uh, position of producing the most archaeologists. Mm-hmm. They have a huge MA program with students from all over the world, and uh, probably the best funding anywhere yes. in the world mm-hmm. in archaeology. Uh, but the other universities are enjoy uh, extreme extreme support, wonderful support from the university and, and the government. The biggest uh, challenge to Israeli archaeology in terms of the world is Jerusalem, what's going on there, when a lot of the money is outside money and um, not always in concert with uh, dialogue with the local Palestinian population. And it is, it is of course, um, engendered a lot of uh, criticism worldwide, and uh, while the fines are magnificent and the restoration beyond belief almost, right. especially the underground stuff that they've uncovered and what they plan to do, the fact that it's run by an NGO is almost without parallel in the history of the land of Israel today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 
City of David is a private NGO. It's not it, the Rashut Atikot, the Antiquities, Antiquities Authority, has given to the City of David Foundation the national park that's without you know parallel mm-hmm. anywhere. And that's that's very unusual. That's and that I think it's unfortunate that the archaeologists have lost control of the story, and mm-hmm. you're seeing bits and pieces of the old biblical archaeology rise in the city of David Foundation, where they take advantage of literal interpretive uh, strategies. You know, this is where Isaiah said that, and this is where this happened, and so on. It's, it, and rather than build a case for what archaeology can do and open the interpretive field for better understanding, they, they've gone the old route for biblical archaeology, uh, that is reflected in many conservative Christian circles. That, that's an interesting point that you make. Um, in what way are people prevented, though, from, you know, I mean, I assume that you can see all the reports that are put out, if you would ask. Is, is someone preventing others from giving their interpretation on what's found there? No, I mean, uh, you know, as a tour guide and a student from bar you know, the fight goes on. And oh, people, yes. of course, read, <laughs> of course read them. But the, the lay tourist is not going to read the literature. They're going right. to read the signs and remember what they see when they walk around the site and what mm-hmm. that, that uh, tour guide tells them on that occasion. Yeah, it's a huge so. responsibility. Which yeah. is why, I mean, that's why a guide was saying, uh, this, some people say this, most people say that, because it's not an exact science. I mean, as much as it is a science, and we have all these tremendous tools of dating uh, that we didn't have before, for example, or reading different, you know, epigraphical remains, it's still not an exact science and possibly never will be, especially when you have so much emotion that's attached to it when it comes to a place like Jerusalem. But as you mentioned before, and I just want to clarify for my listeners, that when you went, for example, into Gush Chalav in the galley, that it's a, a you know, it's a Christian Arab village. But these are places that, um, at least during uh, the Byzantine, late Roman and Byzantine period, so we're talking 17, 16, 15, 1400 years ago, um, were all Jewish villages. And that's why you're looking for synagogues in them. Did you have problems getting in there? Was there, was there difficulty because the population had changed in examining the antiquities in these places? We had no difficulties, whatever. We had difficulties expanding the dig. And mm-hmm. that's an interesting legal problem I'd be happy to share with you. Gushkalov, the synagogue, was down in the wadi, in the right. valley below. Very odd place to find a synagogue. But the ancient Roman period and Byzantine occupation extended way down the valley. And Israel law in light of old Palestinian mandate law, said that the antiquities authority of the country in which it was found owned whatever was demarcated by the surface findings. Mm-hmm. So when we wanted to expand beyond the synagogue in Gush Khalav, it was owned by an Arab family. It was, oh. it was an olive grove and a place where cows were... <laughs> Quartered. So we started negotiating with the, 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 the name of the family was Akel, George Akel, the owner of the field. And he said, well, if you take one olive tree, mandate law says that you have to calculate the life of the olive tree 
and its annual yield. And oh you know, my. So one tree is like $25,000 then, another <laughs> tree is $40,000. Well, that's an interesting way of, of buying land. You don't hear that too often. Okay. And cows got to be moved. Oh, oh my God. It, well, it was, we, we, we had to settle there for excavation and restoration of the synagogue because we couldn't go into the village because we could not arrive at a price to do so with the hmm. owned ownership of the Arab families. His, you're saying their name was Akel. Doesn't that mean farmer in ancient, uh, in Aramaic, if I'm not mistaken? No, Akel. What, what does Akel in, mean? A-K-E-L in English transcription. I don't know what, what it means. Like Akel Dama, which is the field of uh, the continuation of Gai Hinom in, in Jerusalem, right. is literally the field of blood, whether it's because of the story of Judas, or it's because people were buried there. Right. Um, so that was my, so that's why I thought that it meant field or farmer or something like that. I, I, no, I, I maybe just not. don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we employed the whole Akel family, and we we <laughs> remained good friends through the years. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So, I mean, I've had uh, Dr. Jody Magnus on, and she's talked about synagogues and what it meant, and you know, and that, of course, as as you know so well, is totally up. That's one of the big discussions in scholarship right now. Exactly what a synagogue is, and it's funny because as you, as a as a chazan, as a cantor. So you're very involved in modern-day synagogues and also in the ancient synagogues, although I imagine you didn't find the place where the cantor stood in those days. It would have been very different kind of prayers. <laughs> well, in the first two synagogues that I excavated at um, Kibbert Shem, Tekoa, Haglilit, Gush Kalav, we mm -hmm. had a lovely bima. Yeah. And... Uh, both of which dated to the early Byzantine period or mm -hmm. even the end of the Roman period. So Pretty that old. was very, very um, important mm -hmm. piece of the, right that we were looking for in the history of the synagogue. And at Nabertain, Nevariah, of course, when we found the Aron Kodesh, that was exceedingly important. And that coincided with the where the Torah would have been Raid, kept. Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark. So, we found the Lost Ark, of course. Right. Yeah. So so for my listeners who aren't aware, you're kind of, were the impetus for this movie? Do you want no, to tell us? No, the movie came out when we made the discovery and, 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 and everything. You were the poster boy and girl. <laughs> yeah, yes, and People Magazine did a feature on us and... Uh, <laughs> pictures all over the world about us being the real Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. So before Gal Gadot, there were the Myers, huh? <laughs> the the yeah. superheroes of the land. But you, you know, you're also, you'd said, you're, and now are you officially retired or you're still uh, I'm officially retired, but I mean, all that means is that my retirement fund is paying mm -hmm. <laughs> living, but we still, both Carolyn and I have offices on campus. We're still um, working. Sephiroth is fully published. All of our other work is fully published now. Amazing. And still writing articles and doing a lot of Zoom lectures and hope to resume regular travel one of these days. We, mm -hmm. though we, we have resumed taking groups to Israel. Right. As long as the and, pandemic stays at bay and everybody stays yeah, well. Yeah, now we say BP, before the pandemic and after the pandemic. Right, yeah. right. Um, so as a teacher, though, of Jewish history and as an expert in Jewish history, 
I mean, those two subjects, archaeology and Israel and Jewish history, just kind of feed off each other. I would imagine that you integrated some of your field work, did you, in your Jewish history classes or vice versa, or when you found something in the field? Except for, I also taught contemporary Jewish thought. I started out with an MA in modern Jewish thought at Brandeis before I went over to Harvard. And I thought I would be, you know, teaching about uh, Buber, Rosenzweig, and Heschel the rest of my life. But (laughs) I saw that Jewish art, ancient art, and archaeology really um, won my interest over full-time. And I saw that material culture and art, objet art, were things that could inform and provide a new lens on Judaism and antiquity. And, uh, And it certainly has provided me an opportunity to be insightful in areas that for years were closed because of the refusal of rabbinic scholarship to uh, accept, you know, archaeology as a a true handmaiden, as biblical studies had long ago accepted biblical uh, archaeology as its handmaiden. Mm -hmm. So now, I mean, mean, nobody in the rabbinic period in, in, in Israel would dare ignore the findings of archaeology in the teaching of Jewish history, either in the Second Temple period or into late antiquity. Mm-hmm. It, it, these fields have come together, fortunately. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the most um, eloquent spokespersons for this field, if not the new most important voice in Israel, in my opinion, in this area, is Jonathan Adler at Ariel University. His book, um, on the origins of Judaism, I have one of the um, praiseworthy statements on Amazon. Uh, the book is fantastic, and I think it, it, it exemplifies everything archaeology can and should do for the study of Second Temple Judaism, early Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, right through antiquity. That's so funny that you said that because his book is on his way, its way to me. I've been in touch with him for the last couple of weeks and he's online for me to interview him within the next couple of weeks because I, I haven't read the book yet. I will. And I think also that it's an important piece of what's happening here. It's going to take a lot of people out of their comfort zones, possibly myself, but I think that's where we need to go. I think none of us learn. Um, as you said, the rabbis have now I don't know if they've embraced, but they've certainly accepted the importance of ar- the archaeological finds. Archaeologists who would have thought at one point in their lives that the Bible was just a collection of stories that absolutely had no uh, inherent importance have come to realize that their work is very much impacted by the biblical record. And there's, you know, and I think within that area, with all the disagreements, there's really a lot of understanding about how beautiful and big this story is, how exciting it is, and how it takes place here. I mean, as somebody who lives in Israel and takes people around, I don't mind raising the difficult questions that I don't have answers to. But I think the important thing is to raise the questions and to constantly be analyzing. That's the very Jewish thing to do, is to be asking the questions all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you a question then, something that I've always been curious about. 
the zodiac wheels that have been found in some of the ancient synagogues. Some of them, like in Engedi, just talk about the signs of the zodiac, and then you have others where actually you have Helios, you have the sun god in the middle of the wheel, in the middle of a synagogue. Something, from my understanding, is that the churches in the area don't have. So what does that mean? The churches, Christianity was more conservative than Jews. What's your interpretation of something you would really never find, I don't think, at least in an Orthodox synagogue today, you wouldn't find the signs of the Zodiac. What's your interpretation of, uh, and it's not just one or two, of Mm. uh, the presence of what would look to be maybe even pagan symbols at a time where the temple has already been destroyed and rabbinic Judaism or, you know, or, or basically what we're practicing today more or less is is taking form i want to set this in a large a large context of the story of judaism's appropriation of greco-roman culture okay Uh, greco-roman culture was um enveloping the land of israel from the period right after after the destruction of the first temple we have evidence, extensive evidence of Greek occupation, even at Sipori, Sepphoris, mm-hmm. we have a, a, a settlement from around 400 BCE. And this wonderful Greek riton drinking cup was found there. So Greco-Roman culture, first by the Greeks, introduced by, by them themselves, but then the Romans carrying on and combining it it was the vocabulary of ancient modernism, if I could say, put it that way. Mm-hmm. So one of the things John, Jonathan Adler is going to tell you is that the mikvah, right. the ritual bath, and, and, and all sorts of other rules of hygiene and purity are, are greatly indebted to the people over there in mm-hmm. Greece mm-hmm. and part and parcel of Greco-Roman culture. And they were taken over by the Jews and made something incorporated special, into Jewish into ritual their life. own tradition, mm-hmm. Judaized and made made essential elements of the tradition. Art, mosaic art, which originated in Greece and had many overseas studios in the Roman period, especially in what is today part of Syria became the language of Greco-Roman culture, Greek mythology. We have it at Sipori in the house possibly lived in by Rabbi Yodanasi, right. Judah the Prince. Dionysus. You know the so-called yes. Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Look at it. All the legends are in Greek. All the pictures are, are, are of human beings. And this gorgeous woman, one down down the end of the, of the mosaic in this absolutely gorgeous villa of Dionysus. This is the language of high culture, high civilization, without which Judaism would not have been able to develop in the way that look at look look at Sipori, look at Sepphoris, mm-hmm. circa 200 when Rabbi Judah was there. This was not a, a, a city in the highlands. They were in the highlands, but this was not a remote city in the highlands. This was a city of high culture, intellectual creativity. What happened there? The Mishnah was published. Other rabbinic writings were edited and promulgated, and one of the most creative moments in all of Jewish history is taking place 
where you have a theater, a live theater, and everything's in Greek. Come on. Mm -hmm. So we should not be surprised. And when when some of the Haredim, some of the more extreme Orthodox, don't like it that we have these images, so they go to Nevoraya, where we have all sorts of beautiful sculptures from the synagogue, lions and rabbits and other things, no human beings, however, and they destroy it. So that synagogue has been debased over and over again, and then JNF keeps rebuilding it and bringing it back because of the discomfort in modern Judaism with art. And I think an inappropriate understanding of the second commandment. Mm -hmm. Well, any kind of desecration is awful. I mean, you you might not like what was found, um, but you can't destroy it. You have to figure out or ignore it, but don't destroy it. I mean, I think that's obvious to any to any thinking human being. But I'm I'm talking specifically about the zodiac, not in the sense of the images. Oh, you have a woman with a pail or something. I'm talking about the meaning behind it. You know, with horoscopes and fate and all those ideas that to a great degree, are antithetical, at least to Judaism as it's practiced today, those ideas. How do you see that? And it's not just in the theater. It's actually in the synagogue. How do you combine those two ideas? I I don't want to take the story and the symbolism literally. I want to take it as a statement of embracing a foreign culture where those things had currency. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, in the in the Zodiac that we have in the synagogue from the Byzantine period at Sepphoris, Helios is absent. Right. <laughs> and, and we have a combination of, of, of Jewish symbols right alongside the Zodiac and same thing at Beit Alpha. Mm-hmm. So there's an attempt to, you know, combine the traditions without, I think, adopting the mythic uh, intellectual Religious, Uh even. Uh huh. Interesting. Okay. So it's there as art without reading too much into it. Yeah. Which we would do now from the context in the world that we live in now. Mm hmm. Yes. Well, look at the synagogues in the United States, some in Israel, in Australia. You mentioned Australia. I mean, the art is fabulous and it's very contemporary. It has all sorts of things. And Jews want to embrace this is called acculturation. Mm-hmm. Jewish people adopting the best of high culture around them to express their own unique talent and identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's uh, it 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 makes people nervous because I, I think know that does. I know I know I'm fine with making people nervous, as my listeners sadly know, um, because it it should be confusing. You know, we we look at things now from the context of our modern world and we apply those ideas to worlds that were hundreds or thousands of years ago. We don't know how they were thinking, we don't know what they were seeing, we don't know how they were interpreting things. Uh we right. never really will. But this just illuminates the story and I think makes humanity so fascinating because we're constantly evolving, not in the sense of Darwin, but evolving in our ideas and adapting to the things around us and bringing them in. And it's just so fascinating, really, to live in Israel and to see these things literally be uncovered and try and figure out how the changes happened uh, and why. Mo is asking why. 
they happened as well. So, uh, okay, so that's, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear your interpretation of it because it's something that's very often discussed and I know it bothers people. I was just in Susia a couple of weeks ago in the Southern Chevron Hills, also the, syn- the synagogue from the same time period, although quite far away, uh, with similar things, you know, uh, in the floor and it, and it makes people wonder what exactly is going on here. So, um, has your, has your interpretation of Judaism, which is clearly something that's very close to your heart as a, you know, as a chazan, as someone who sings in the synagogue, and I know is very involved in, in Jewish life. Has it changed? Has it been changed by your profession and the work that you've done over the past few decades? I, I, can, I can say honestly that archaeology has only enriched and enhanced my appreciation for what uh, Ju- Judaism was was mm-hmm. and how it developed in antiquity up up to the present. Um, I, I think this ability to accommodate to new environments, intellectual, cultural, visual, and so on, what I call acculturation, that ability to adapt to the new situation was what allowed Judaism to survive, prevail, in the face of prejudice and tragedy through the years. Look, for example, at the results of the two destructions of Jerusalem. What ensued in historical time were two of the most creative periods in the history of the Jewish people. In the sixth century after the destruction, BCE. Despite going to yeah. the, the the first destruction, yeah, BCE, mm-hmm. going to Babylonia in 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 these faraway places and and becoming enslaved or whatever, the Bible was edited. The Bible was promulgated, first edition, so to speak. The Pentateuch and the former prophets certainly came to fruition in the diaspora. The idea of the synagogue in private prayer, what Ezekiel calls the mikdash me'at, the little synagogue or the little temple, Mm -hmm. the idea of praying without the temple in Jerusalem came to be. And this ability to adapt to a new culture, look, look, just read the literature in Assyriology and and about those Jewish communities in Babylonia that ultimately produced the Babylonian Talmud. Right. Not exactly failure by any measure. No, not Look at all. Look at after 70, after this divisive, horrible, no good war. Look what happens. The second destruction. This is the destruction synagogue. of the second temple. Mm-hmm. Destruction of, in 70 CE. The synagogue is is expanded. We have now a dozen, 15 synagogues from the first century. But the synagogue, as we know it, began to evolve. The liturgy, as we know it, began to evolve from Yavna and onwards. The canon of the entire Hebrew Bible was developed. Mm -hmm. And the adoption of Greco-Roman culture, as I've said, led to the creativity at Sipori and other intellectual centers and the publication of the Mishnah, the Midrash and all of this. And the Jerusalem, the and Jerusalem Talmud. Talmud. The land of mm-hmm. uh, right. Of right. Which is probably not, not exactly. studied enough, but that's a different discussion. Yeah. The Jerusalem not exactly Talmud. failure. These are Jewish people, creative response to exile, tragedy, 
and adaptability was the key to all of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think we're living in a time where thankfully it's the opposite of exile. It's the, finally the ingathering and also tremendous creativity and thinking a lot of it because of work of people such as yourself and your wife who have come to the land and used all your skills and all your professionalism to uncover the things that were here, which is not, we're not able to do that anywhere else. I mean, sure, we'll find a synagogue in what's today, you know, the Czech Republic or in Germany, but it's not like what we have here, which is the tremendous layers of, of our presence right. here for so long. Um, and, you know, that in combination with a lot of the philosophy and a lot of the thinking and a lot of the challenges of how it is to have a Jewish state, what that means to that the public places are ours, the public spaces are ours, what that what that all means, how you run a society, um, what it means to be a Jew altogether, which is a question that will probably never be answered now that I really think about it. But all of these are incredibly exciting along the lines of what you were saying, the different times of our history where there has been explosions of creativity. And I think, I think we're seeing that now too. But of course, you're going to have people on different ends. So you're going to have tremendous yeshivot, the tremendous places of Torah learning that have come back after the Holocaust, who are not necessarily as open to some of the things that you're doing as others are. But you also have, because it's a free society, you also have people coming from the other side, or you have someone like the late Adam Zertal, who I really don't think was appreciated enough during his lifetime, who comes from a very, very non-Tanakh background, and during his survey of, you know, of the Northern Shomron and of Menashe, you know, comes to really deepen his understanding of the book of Joshua. So it's coming from all different places, from all different, you know, parts of that circle. And it's super exciting. I mean, I know that I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing now than living here, teaching about the land, learning about the land and having really the privilege of interviewing you and others. Um, and just to get a little bit of a glimpse of some of the tremendous knowledge that you have accrued over the years and that you've passed on to your students. So the book that you put out, though, is not, is not really, it's not an academic book. It's kind of a personal memoir. Yes, an accidental archaeologist, available, I assume, on Amazon, like everything else yes. on the planet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So why yes. did you write it, like, for fun? Or just how'd that come it's, about? It started out as um, a way of... Um, telling the sto story of my unique family background and academic interest to our grandkids. And, yeah. uh, you, you know, I could um, wake up dead tomorrow, so to speak. Oh, that's <laughs> terrible. I, <laughs> no, but I, I wanted I wanted there to be a pl place where the the next generation and our family could learn something from our unique historical mm -hmm. story and uh, also trace my academic uh, life um, through its most interesting uh, years. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, And it expanded, obviously, from a memoir for the kids to right. something for, for everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's why you published it. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And history, history it, today is not studied the way it used to be. I, I call presentism this focus on on the now is, is way too too much. And uh, if I may 
another problem with society is you know the instant gratification on google and and uh, yeah. handheld devices of all kind has not helped um nurture curiosity among the younger people mm -hmm. uh, and that's that that that's a problem yeah and i think history history has a lot to teach us and by ignoring it we just we're going to fall into a familiar trap and um mm -hmm. uh, we have so much to learn from the past i mean in including inclusivity and i think the jewish people uh today uh have a bit of an obligation to look back and see the kind of important inclusivity that Sephiroth in the 6th century had Jews, Christians, 7th century Muslims, and pagans all living together, mm -hmm. sharing water and resources. Mm -hmm. We did it in the past, we can do it again. That's, that's really the message I want uh, to convey through history. Jews' adaptability made them accept their neighbors, live with them, and adapt to the Golan Heights in in the Roman Byzantine period. You know this as an archaeologist. You have these little corners of, of Christianity, little corners Amazing. of Jewish life and, and pagan uh, life. And, and, and then in the Islamic period, all of them alongside one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can do it. We can do it again. And we have to do it again. Yeah, it's uh, it just involves people not wanting to be, uh, you know, to kill the other one. That that's oh, kind of the basic, the baseline. So uh, you know, yeah. when that gets taken away, then there's a lot of common elements that we have, which is also just wanting a future, wonderful future for our children, and for Absolutely. them be able to to enjoy the the amazing things that uh, that this that our Creator has put on this planet, and just to do it in safety and in health. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Eric Myers. Really, um, I, I was glad that I got that, the, the little notice about your books. That I was like, oh, yes, I've been wanting to interview him for a long time. This is a terrific oh, opening. It really is. Thank and you. I hope that I, ha that I can meet you the next time you come. Um, I, I would really be an honor to, uh, to do so and, uh, you know, spend a day, learn, some, learn something from you, from your prodigious knowledge. And I hope that you continue to do so for many decades to come. Thank you so much. Yes. Yehi Shalom. Amen. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Thanks to Ben and to Tabitha. And thanks to you all for continuing to tune in. And I will continue to make it worth your while. Take care, everybody. And goodbye for now. The Land of Israel Network is your connection to Israel and the Jewish world. Listen to our show hosts, Ari Abramowitz, Jeremy Gimpel, Eve Harrow, Josh Haston, Mike Foyer, Yishai Fleischer, and more. Keeping you up to date on news, politics, and spirituality. That's the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. Broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world.